0: Now, let me invite you to turn in your Bible, friends, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 30 this evening. We're actually focusing on 25 to 30, but we want to catch the context again, one paragraph flowing into another. What is it supposed to look like to live as Christians? That's our subject. The Bible describes two ways to live. One flows from not knowing God and from a hard heart and amounts to futility. In this view, nothing lasts for eternity. There is no eternity. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Its logic is, uh, why not give yourself to life's pleasures as much as you can, as often as you can, in any way that you can think of, to maximize your pleasure, even if, it hurts others or yourself because after all you only live once and then you're dead carpe diem robin williams said in dead Poets society to a group of boys at a small private school seize the day boys why do you remember the scene he leaned in and he said because one day you're going to be fertilizing daffodils and when you're dead you're dead and that's it nothing matters for eternity now i realize that not every non-christian would describe life like that and you may be here and you're not a christian and you wouldn't describe life like that i want you to know that we are delighted that you're here i'd love to dialogue about these things with you i do think it's hard to see why that's not uh, why that's not what life amounts to if there is no god and you can't know him because he doesn't exist. And you don't live forever because you don't. This life is all that there is. Why not grab it all? Some of us, including myself, lived this way for more than a decade. Almost two. Others for longer than that. We recognize that view. There's a, in contrast to that, there's the vision of the Christian life that the Apostle Paul has. You're going to go on living Forever in the presence of God. Jesus promised you eternal life. You know God and are going to know him far better than you do now. And this life, therefore, is but a prelude to a symphony of delights which are coming in the presence of God at whose right hand there are pleasures forever, evermore, and unendingly. You're going to have a resurrected body in a new heavens and a new earth in, in a community of people who are closer than your best friends forever. To the Christians then, if that's your identity and that is your destiny and that is your community, how might you live now? Live in accordance with that and not against it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in Ephesians 4, 17 to 30. This is the way then that you should live in light of all that God has done for you and promised to you. So let me invite you to consider it this evening, beginning in chapter 4, verse 17. How should we live? This is God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Be our teacher, we pray, Father in heaven. Enlighten the eyes of our mind. We might understand your word, lift Jesus high before us, that we would be drawn to Him. Help us, heal us, give us hope. We ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Paul here at 20, verse twenty-five, which is the bulk of our subject tonight, and following tells Christians you need to be truth tellers, be angry without sin, and resolve. Your anger quickly become hardworking and generous, and use your words to bless others. What's he saying when he says this? And why is he saying it? How does the gospel bring this about in our experience, so that we're not just sort of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and cranking it out in our own strength? So, what's he saying? I want to I want to walk through this with you under three headings. In the first place, the principles of living this out, then the specifics he gets to about living it out, and then the main thing. In the first place, the principles. What's it supposed to look like to live as a Christian? Well, here are some of the principles, and this is in part by way of review. Now, I've got, I think, seven principles here. It's okay if... uh, we have a sermon where the first point has seven points, isn't it? How do we live this out? In principle, number one, this kind of life that Paul talks about here begins with washing. Imagine you own acres of land bordering the Illinois River and you have a dozen horses with a horse stable and six stalls on each side and and there's a, uh, there's a, a hallway between them and you decide you're going to clean out that stable. You take a wheelbarrow with you and a shovel and you start mucking it out. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to end up tracking that muck everywhere. You'll leave some of it behind. You'll drop some of it off the wheelbarrow and, and you'll track it on your boots all through the stable. The best way to clean that stable would be this. Divert the Illinois River to run through that stable. Let it rush through and wipe it clean. Jesus did that for us. And we cannot do that for ourselves. We need to be washed, cleansed, and pardoning grace comes to us and wipes us. From all our filth, all our lying, all our unjust anger, all our stealing and hoarding and corrupt talk. And he washes you clean when you see the cross. And you see that Christ took your guilt and he suffered your judgment. And he carried away the wrath of God. He diverted the righteous anger of God from you. Because he loved you and gave himself for you. And the father loved you and gave his son for you. And he forgives you. And the Spirit comes and he brings that to you. you got to start there, friends. It would be easy to hear Paul saying something like, well, you know, Ephesians 4, you guys need to shape up and get with the program. I mean, do this and God will save you. But he's not saying that at all. The commandments here he gets to are not rungs in a ladder by which you climb your way into heaven by your obedience. Oh, friends, you don't purchase forgiveness or cleansing by living a good life all your hope is in jesus all the right standing you have with god is on the foundation of the right standing jesus has with god in your place and you're clothed in him so that in jesus you get pardoned because he dies for you and you get accepted as perfectly righteous in the eyes of god not because you're so good at verse 25 and following but because Jesus was perfectly good at it, and he is yours, and so is his righteousness. So you need to begin here, friends. This kind of living isn't about establishing your own righteousness before God, but living in light of a new life you've been given. So it begins with washing, and it also begins with transformation. Washing and transformation, Paul here in 22 to 24 says you have, when you heard about Christ, you already put off the old man. And you put on the new man. You are, he says, already new. As he says in 2.10, you're God's workmanship. You're a new creation. You're a new creature in Christ. The old is gone, the new is come. So that at the very root of who you are, in the core of who you are, you are new. You're not what you once were. So Paul is not saying do this and live. He is saying God has given you life by grace. Now express that life. That makes all the difference in the world. You cannot cultivate a life you do not have. You can't bring more and more to expression of what doesn't exist in your soul. And and so Paul says here, look, the resource... To live the new life is not just you know, that the penalty of sin has been done away in the death of Christ, it is, but that also the power to live a new life is in the fact that the dominion of sin, the domination of sin, the mastery of sin over you has been slain. Because you have died with Christ, and sin is not your master; you are not its slave. Christ is your master, and it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And you've been raised with Christ, and you're new creation. That's what you are. And when I struggle with obedience, when I, when I struggle with sins of lying, truth telling, not truth telling, anger. When, when I struggle with not working hard so that I can be generous towards others, when I struggle with these things, friends, it's not that just we, we, we go back to, well, you know, I really ought to be grateful that he died for me. And then that would change everything about the way that I live. And if I was just more grateful, I would then get it right. Friends, there are, there are resources beyond that for you in the gospel. It's true, that will motivate you. Gratitude will motivate But you actually need to go back and remember that that Christ died for you and you died in him. And Christ was raised from the dead for you and you have been raised from the dead in him. You've been given new life. So it's not just a matter of trying to be something I'm not, if I could just be thankful enough. But it's A matter of being what I have become. Living out what is true of me in Christ. You have already, he says, thrown off who you were in Adam. And you have put on new life in Christ. Now, therefore, this is what that looks like. There's a a great story told of St. Augustine. After his conversion from a very licentious and oversexed lifestyle. He was walking down the street, and he happened to pass upon one of his old lovers. And as they passed by, Augustine simply nodded and kept walking. The woman was offended, and she stopped. And you could sort of imagine her putting her hands on her hips as she said to Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turned and looked and said, but it is not I. You see what he said? I'm not who I was. I'm not the person I used to be. I was dead in sin and enslaved to my passions. And now I'm alive with Christ and free in Christ. I'm a different person. It is not I. That is what you are. You, and you, you, in order to begin to do what Paul says here, you need to be washed and you need to be transformed and made alive. You can't forget verses 22 to 24 when you get to verse 25 and he starts telling you very specifically what you need to do. You're new. Third principle. If you have the gospel, you will begin to make some progress. If you have made no progress at all, then you haven't yet been saved by the gospel. No matter what you tell yourself. You may think you're saved, but you're not. There's always some progress. Some. Even the thief on the cross who was just moments away from death. Who had very little time changed a bit, and he began to repent and to ask for mercy. And he began to want to leave behind the kingdom of this world and to be accepted into the kingdom of Christ. And so he said, Jesus, remember me. I know who you are, you're the king. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Today, you will be with me in paradise. We we all begin to make some kind of progress in the Christian life. It isn't fourth principle, it isn't optional. It's not optional. Paul says our growth in holiness is in keeping with what he said back in chapter 1, verse 4. Turn there for a moment. When he said in chapter 1, verse 4, "...even as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him." Listen, you see what Paul is saying. Don't get weirded out about the issue of God choosing us or or the issue of election. And this, I'm afraid, isn't the sermon to explain to you its meaning. And I'm happy to talk to you about that idea later. And we looked at that back in chapter 1. But would you just recognize, on the one hand, that the word is in the Bible? So we have to have some view of it. We can't say, well, about election, there is no such thing. I mean, there is some such thing. What is that thing? We need to ask that question. What does the Bible mean by it? We can't just say, well, there's no such thing. But listen, in the view that you take of it, would you just notice that Paul says you are elect for the purpose of holiness. God chose you that you might be holy and blameless before him in love. God chose you to make you holy. So to those who say, well, if election is true, then why does it matter how I live? I mean, if election is true, I must be able to live like the devil because it doesn't matter. I mean, after all, I'm elect. Paul would say to you, well, that's ridiculous. The point of your election was unto your holiness. So God has guaranteed that he will make us like Jesus in glory. And even now he has begun that process and it is guaranteed and it isn't optional. Fifth principle, just because you're new doesn't mean you're perfect. Just because the old man is gone and the new man has come doesn't mean the new man is perfect. Listen, God has made you genuinely new, but he has not made you perfectly new. The heart struggles with indwelling sin. Sin lives within me and what I want to do, I do not do. And the things that I do not want to do those are the very things that i do the apostle paul says in Romans 7 there is a war going on because sin dwells in me this is all an argument against perfectionism some of you have heard that if you just lived right as a christian you wouldn't struggle with sin anymore you could actually live without sin any longer in this life would you notice that if Christians are people who no longer sin, then there's no point in telling you how you need to live. You're already living that way, but every, Christian, every experienced Christian knows that's not true. The fact that you have to be told to stop lying to one another, stop stealing, stop st- sinning in anger, stop using corrupting words, the fact that you have to be told this is evidence that Christians still struggle with these things. And he's trying to teach you then so that you'll learn because you aren't yet perfect like one day you will be. And so sixth principle, you need to be brainwashed. You heard that right. You need to be brainwashed or transformed by the renewing of your minds. Verse 23, chapter four, be renewed, continually renewed in the spirit of your minds. When I became a Christian, at the age of 18, I shortly went off to college, got involved in a ministry, started reading the Bible and attending church. It was all very exciting and brand new. My sister confronted my mom with the idea that I was being brainwashed through Bible study in church. Mom raised this concern to me and I was a bit speechless at the time. Now, I think I know what I would say. I think I would say, Mom... For the first time in 18 years of my life, whereas I used to let anything and everything, no matter how filthy it was, wash over my brain, now for the first time I'm making positive decisions to let good things wash my brain and shape my thinking. That's what Paul wants you to do. You need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul doesn't just want you to sort of drop a bad habit and pick up a new habit because you saw good Christians doing it. He wants you to be renewed in the way that you even think. He wants it to be so ingrained in the core of your thinking, a new attitude of thinking. Why would you do this? Like, in other words, like a good parent, he's saying, he's not just interested in what you do but why you do it. He wants you to understand why you must not live like this anymore, but now why you need to live this other way so that you'll own it from the heart as any parent wants their kid to own it. This is why we live the way that we live. And so last principle, Paul wants us to think like a child in the home of the most wise and generous father whom you love, adore, and respect. Whom you hope one day to be like. How can I be like you? This child asks. And the father says, well, there's this thing about truth telling. And about letting your anger drain away. And about work and generosity. And using your words to bless others. And build them up in grace. That's what it's like to be like me, the Father is saying. And so you you need to recognize this, that the law, the Ten Commandments, that Paul is walking you through here, which is what he's doing. that the law that led you to Christ by showing you your sin, like a mirror showing you the warts on your face, and like a billboard on the highway, it said, flee to Jesus to be saved, and like a hammer, it chopped you off at the knee so that you bowed before your Savior in humility and said, rescue me. And now that law, like tracks on a railroad, it shows you the path that you should travel. This law carries no power to help you do it. Just telling you what you should do cannot help you do what you should do. You need the engine of the Holy Spirit empowering you. You need the strength that only God can supply to do what you should do. But the commandments do tell you how Jesus lived his life. He lived it like this. And the commandments tell you how you are being reshaped and remade and conformed by the Holy Spirit after the image of Christ. How you are becoming like a child in the Father's house resembling the Father because you are a child. So these are principles then of living like a Christian. You start with being washed and made new by God. You make some progress. It isn't optional. You won't be perfect now. You need God to renew your brain. And you need to begin to think like a child who wants to be like his father in heaven. Those are the principles. The specifics are briefer. Four specifics here then. Paul gets to very pointedly starting at verse 25. Look at the four specific things. Each one is worthy of a sermon and we're just not gonna have time for that. Notice in verse 25, he says this. So then stop lying and start telling the truth. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. You understand what he's getting at? He's saying, you have already put off the lie, the false. You have rejected the lie that Adam believed. The idea that you could make yourself like God. The lie that by going your own way, you could make yourself like God. The irony in the garden was that God had already made Adam like God and Adam and Eve were deceived he had already made them after his own image but Adam believed the lie that God was holding out and so he went his own way and did his own thing as we do and rather than becoming more like God he became less he fell away he became unlike God and now what God is doing is he is restoring you after his own image He's restoring you according to himself. And you're beginning to love what he loves. And to think what he thinks. And to desire what he desires. And you're beginning to do what he calls you to do. To live like how he lives. And, and Paul is saying, Look, you've, already, you've already said no to the old man that was in Adam. That rejected God's wisdom and truth. And in your new man you've embraced Christ. And you've said I want this. You threw off the pseudo. The false. The lie. Now live the truth. Why would you go back to living the lie? Paul says I want you to be truth tellers. Because you've already put off the lie. You've already said I don't want to be a part of Adam. and a world that descends from him. Where it's every man for himself. He's saying to you this, would you remember that lies poison relationships in the family of God? And in the family of God, it isn't every man for himself. So speak the truth to one another because you're members of one another. Your fellowship, your community, your intimacy is built on trust, and trust is built on truth. You'll be close to one another and be able to help one another if you're honest with one another and you're not pretending. You're not hiding. That's the first thing, he says. The second is this. Stop being unrighteously angry, but be sure your anger is righteous. Verse 26 and 27, he says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. There is, there is an anger that's righteous and isn't sinful. And the world could do with a lot more of that from all of us. And you recognize that that. There are terrible things that go on in this world that you and I ought to be angry about. Child abuse in society, human trafficking. And if these things don't make us angry, there's something wrong with us. We ought to be angry at evil. God is angry at injustice. He hates what hurts people. Jesus was angry with the money changers when they defiled the temple and kept people from worshiping God and knowing his grace. So there's an appropriate kind of anger. Some of you have thought to yourselves, it's always wrong to be angry. Anger is always an ungodly emotion and so I should never be angry. And so you pretend that there is nothing to be angry about. You act as if nothing is worth being mad about. And then when you do get angry about things you ought to be angry about, you feel bad about it. But some anger is appropriate. But of course, for us fallen human beings, more often than not, our anger is unrighteous anger. And he says, be angry, but do not sin in your anger. Maybe you're so angry tonight that you could just spit. Maybe there's a face you'd like to spit into. Others of you have held onto your anger so long that when you do give vent to it, it's all out of proportion, no matter how righteous that anger actually is. Be angry and do not sin, he says. God, in his anger, never goes beyond what is just. Too often, we we just fly off the handle, we misread a situation, and we blow our top. And so he says, when you are angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it simmer. Don't stew over it. Don't let it fester. Deal with it. He's talking about personal relationships with people. Like in marriage, of course. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's where the devil gets in. So don't get in bed angry at your spouse. That's a good principle to live by. And sometimes, of course, things are far too complicated for you to work them out. Because if you tried to work them out that night, you'd be up all night and not be able to carry out your responsibilities the next day. There are occasions in which you need to say, we're angry about this, but, but I love you and I'm willing to talk about it. And, and maybe we need to work this out tomorrow. So don't harbor it, don't brood over it, don't pout for days because you didn't get your own way. That's what the apostle is saying. Why? Why though? Why would you embrace that idea? Let the gospel teach you here. Do you understand that that's what God did for you? What he did for all who shelter themselves in Jesus. God turned aside from even his righteous anger. He has no unrighteous anger. And he dealt with his anger on the cross. And darkness descended on the Son of God when the wrath of God came against the Son of God for all of our injustice, all of our sin. And it was all poured out on him and the Father released us from the just wrath we deserve. So too, Paul says, deal with your anger in ways that aren't destructive of fellow Christians. Because God has dealt with His own, His righteous indignation, in ways that were for your blessing. So be like your father," he's saying. "Stop stealing. Stealing." Third, third specific, verse 28. "Stop stealing and work to give the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands." And so he says, "You need to stop cheating." And shoplifting, and borrowing things that you never return, and not paying your taxes, cutting corner at work, and shirking your responsibilities that people are paying you for, and all the ways that we steal. And instead of stealing, he says, work hard and give. In other words, you put off hoarding too, put off accumulating too, and learn to pass it along. Be generous. Why? Why? That's the character of God. He doesn't hoard what he has, but he shares it with us. It's the character of Jesus who, though he was rich, became poor. That you, dear Christian friend, that you through his poverty might be made rich. Spiritually and eternally in every way. He has made you a co-heir with himself. Of all things. Because God is open-handed and generous. This is why you need to be like that. And finally, stop talking to tear people down. But use your words to build them up. That's his fourth specific, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such is good for building up. As fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. Some of you, I realize... I think we all do this in some way. We, we look at other Christians who are struggling in sin. They're struggling with truth-telling or, or with unjust anger or, or, or work or generosity. And we roll our eyes at them. And we say, what is wrong with those people? What is it with these people? I mean, how can they do these terrible, horrible things? What idiots we say, whether with our mouth or our heart. What fools we say. What good-for-nothing Christians We sometimes say, and Paul says, you who use your words to tear Christians down instead of build them up. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about putrid talk, corrupting talk, rotten talk, trash talk. Let's talk about talking bad about people in the church. Don't do these things, he says. Be the kind of Christian who uses their words to build up. To build them up in grace. Why? Because this is precisely what Jesus does with his words to you. He speaks to you. And even if it's corrective. Even if it hurts. Even if it exposes the worst about you. Jesus in mercy is building you up in grace. And aiming for your glory. So likewise. You. So these are the specifics. And there's one last main thing. And you see it in verse 30. In verse 30, he gets to this and he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's picking up the language of Isaiah chapter 63, verse 10, which is a reference in the book of Isaiah to the Exodus. And it says this, but they grieve. This is God's people, but they they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. And see what he's doing, he's connecting these ideas with the Holy Spirit. He's saying this, that the executive, the administrator, the one who accomplished the exodus was the Holy Spirit. And in our own exodus, as we are being led out of bondage towards the glory which is to come, the one who is leading us, the one who is guiding us, the one even who is inside of us to bring this about is the Holy Spirit. And don't grieve the Spirit. In your journey then. And and, and he's saying don't grieve. And that language there is clear. He's not speaking of some force. He's speaking of a person. Your computer. No matter how much you communicate with it. Can't be grieved. Siri. Who even talks back to you. On your iPhone. Siri can't be grieved. Because Siri doesn't love you. But a person who loves you can be grieved by you and the spirit loves you and when we sin and rebel we grieve him because the spirit is longing to make you like jesus to conform you to christ and when you live in unchristlike ways and when you speak in unchristlike ways it grieves the spirit but there's hope the spirit you gr- grieve he says is the spirit who sealed you for the day of redemption. He he doesn't leave you in despair here. The spirit, he's saying, never leaves you or forsakes you. He's sealed you for the day of redemption. He's come to you and he lives in you and he's guaranteed your Christ-likeness. And he walks with you on that day to perfection. And day by day, he's making you more like Jesus. And he is more committed to that than you are. And he cannot fail. And that's God's promise. And that's our hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you're a faithful and persevering God who loves us people and has determined us to make us like your son. Do so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.